0: There are uh, some biblical passages that are just kind of uh, meat and potato texts, at least that's what I've heard them called, just like straightforward, you know, bear one another's burdens, that's good, be a good Christian, right, love your neighbor, hate sin, things like that. Uh, There are other passages that are just exceedingly beautiful, they're the ones you paint on your wall in your home, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, quiet waters. Then there are other passages, like we're looking at today, that are like a key that unlocks the rest of the scriptures, like a key that unlocks all of the gospel. In fact, we've been in a long kind of key section of Jesus fulfilling the law. Jesus showing up not to overturn everything that has come before, but actually to fulfill it. He shows the true meaning of the law. He's been showing us every week, example after example after example, what does it look like for him to fulfill the law, for the true meaning of the law to show us this high standard we can't meet, but he can. And so today we look at the final example of this kind of key section. But more than that today, in our passage today, we see a passage that gets at the very heart of the Christian identity, the very heart of who we are called to To be as Jesus' people, as Christians, as little Christs, as the people of the kingdom that follow this king of the kingdom. What is our witness to the lost and dying world supposed to be? And how are we particularly to respond when that lost and dying world that hates the king that we follow, when they persecute us, how are we meant to respond? And so we have a kind of a unique text where we see a key that unlocks the whole of scripture And then also shows us something at the very heart of our Christian identity. Who are we meant to be as people who follow this Savior? So we're going to look at this today. Three things. What does it mean to love like God? Love like God. What does it mean to live as people of a different kingdom? Not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of God. And then lastly, what does it mean to rest in the perfect King? Love like God, live as people of a different kingdom, and rest in the perfect king. So let's look at that first section, loving like God. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So just to do a quick review, I know you guys are tired of this, it's like, We review what we've said before, and then it's like the majority of the sermon is just review, so I'll just be a bit quicker. We're in this section of what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law. Everything in the Old Testament has been pointing forward to a Savior that's going to set us free from our failures. As we fall short of the law's high standards, someone's going to have to set us free from that failure, and Jesus is the one who's come to do that. And so he's been, he laid down that kind of foundational passage weeks ago. I haven't come to overturn the law, rather to fulfill it. And then he's been giving us every week examples of, here's what you think the law has meant. Here's the standard you think the law gave. It's actually higher. You thought, I don't murder people? Cool, that's all I have to do. It's actually, don't have any hatred in your heart. You thought, no adultery, great. No, no, no. It's, have, you, have you ever had a lustful thought? And he's been giving this kind of formula where he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say. Okay, so today we're going to see the last one. You have heard that it was said. Look again at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, so he's quoting Leviticus 19. Here it is, or referencing it, not really a direct quote. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, notice what's not there. Nothing in there about hating your enemy. Okay, so what's Jesus getting at? We actually saw this with divorce a couple weeks ago. Jesus is simultaneously, he's quoting something from the Old Testament and also referencing the common interpretation of the day. So he's, Jesus is preaching a sermon on a mount, more like a hill. I've been to where they think it is. So it's it's kind of like that. It's like a slight slope. Uh, but we call it Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's people around him, hundreds of people around him, listening to him who very much know their Old Testament, very much know the law, and like you with the Scriptures, have interpretations of what they think the law means. And so people look at Leviticus 19. All the hearers listening to Jesus would look at Leviticus 19 and say, yeah, love our neighbor. And what that necessarily implies, they would think, is you don't love those who aren't your neighbor, right? Or you hate your enemy. That's kind of the common understanding. And they could even look at other passages uh, like Psalm 139 and, and get this kind of idea of hating your enemy. Psalm 139 Uh, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them as my enemies. How many people have that on their wall at home? I didn't think so. Right? And so the comment, Jesus both quoting Leviticus 19 and bringing out what every one of his hearers would have understood or thought they understood, right? Yes, we love our people, and we hate those who are not our people, which in Jesus' day, uh, it's, it's a, I read one commentator that said it was an environment where it would have been impossible for hatred to starve. Right? There's very much a lot of tense hatred uh, in Jesus' day. I know it's hard for us to imagine because our day is so filled with love and uh, gentleness. Uh, but think, just, just a quick, quick snapshot. That was a joke. Uh, quick snapshot of Jesus' day. You've got the Romans, your oppressors who are here seemingly only to make your life worse, right, to submit to them. You hate the Romans if you're a Jew in Jesus' day. You have the Gentiles, right, these unclean pagans who you would have nothing to do with. They don't follow our laws. They don't follow our God. They don't follow our customs. They're unclean, right? We need to stay away from them. And then you would have guys like the tax collectors who are Jewish but traitors, right? They're even worse than a Gentile because they work for the Romans and they take your money and they even take a little bit of extra to keep for themselves, right? There's all these groups that would have been viewed as other than. All these groups that would have been enemies, right? Very much uh, the, the tense hatred environment of Jesus's day. So you have your people that you love, and then you have the others who you hate, who are there to make your life worse, who how can anybody possibly believe the things that they believe, right? Are they even human, right? You have this sort of hatred that is stirring in people's heart and Jesus speaking directly into this sort of environment. And here's what he says, verse 44, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what is Jesus' answer? You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. What's his answer? The exact opposite of what all of his hearers would have understood. Rather than hating your enemy, I say to you, love your enemy. In fact, he takes it one step further. Don't just love them, pray for those who persecute you. Not just people who vote differently than you, those who are coming after you, those who want to make your life miserable, those who want you to suffer. Pray for those who persecute you. Radically different than what every single person in the crowd would have expected him to say. Radically different than what everyone would have expected him to say, and it emerges this theme that we're going to look at today, which is there is a massive, eternal difference between the people of the kingdom, those who follow King Jesus, and the people of the world. There is a radical, massive difference, or at least there should be, between the people of God and the people of Of the world. The people of the world, when they are persecuted, how do they respond? Hatred, right? Trade evil for evil. The people of Jesus, the people of the kingdom that follow King Jesus, when they're hated, when they're persecuted, they love their enemy and they pray, they do good, they actively bless those who are persecuting them, those who are trying to destroy them. Notice it's not just a heart position. Right? It's not just love. It's not just don't think mean things about them, right? It's an action. Do good for those who are persecuting you. So there's a there's an old story of uh, Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Decades ago, uh, liberal theology very much went through the Southern Baptist Convention. That doesn't mean politically liberal, like liberal meaning. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Jesus isn't God, like that sort of liberal. Uh, and it very much infected every seminary. And there was a big conservative uh, resurgence that at Southern in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Al Mohler kind of led. And so as he became president and he's making professors who were denying the resurrection sign statements that they hold to the Orthodox Christian faith, professors are resigning, students are protesting, uh, and there is a, there's an old story of, uh, a bunch of students in his, uh, the hallways of the admin building outside of his office protesting, probably shouting, really mean things at him. And he, uh, in response, bought them all pizza, right? Because you love your enemy, right? He could have kicked open the door and been like, liberal theology denies that Jesus is God. You guys are tearing apart the church. Be gone. But he doesn't. He follows Jesus' words here and buys them all pizza as a way to say, I love you, be blessed. I'm sure he prayed for them as well, right? So you see that radical difference. Jesus is saying, do good to those who are persecuting you. In the same way that a hateful heart gives birth to sinful actions, a hateful heart gives birth to gossip and slander and mocking and murder, as we saw a few weeks ago, let a loving heart of the followers of Jesus give birth to Prayer. Give birth to actually loving your enemy, loving those who are persecuting you. Now, the natural question is, why? Why? Good question. Jesus is going to answer it. Verse 45. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just And the unjust. So, why should we love our enemy? Remember what this whole sermon is about. Not this one, but the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus is showing up in his ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist announced it. We're waiting for all this promised stuff from all the Old Testament where the kingdom of God would come and reign and the people of God would experience the joy of the Lord as their enemies are put away and Jesus shows up as the king of the kingdom and says, it is here. And he opens his mouth to give the most famous sermon in the history of the world, this Sermon on the Mount, to say, what is the kingdom like? This kingdom that you've been anticipating, what is it like and what are the people of the kingdom meant to be like. And one of the things that we've seen that we'll get to dive into in a few weeks when we look at the Lord's Prayer is that the people of the kingdom are sons and daughters of God. You don't just call God God. You call him Father. And so, since we've been brought into the family of God as members of the kingdom, our behavior should reflect the character of our Father. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, your behavior should reflect the character of your father. Now, what does that have to do with loving your enemies? How does God respond to his enemies? What does Jesus say? How does God respond to those who hate him? Let me just say it this way. There is no one who has the right to destroy his enemies like the infinitely holy and glorious God. He gives life to all of us. We use that life to attempt to dethrone him and to step in his place. I don't want you as my God. I want to be God. I want to decide what is good and what is evil. That's what we do with the life that God gave us. He gives us breath. We use that breath to curse his name. And yet, how does God respond? Does he wipe out his ungrateful creation that wants nothing To do with him? No. What does Jesus, has he done? How does God respond? He takes the sun, S U N, and rises it to warm all of his enemies. He sends rain, right, which is a good thing. It helps your crops grow, right? Sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I think we all experienced this past summer how much we love rain. Like it didn't rain forever. My backyard looked like the Lion King after Scar took over, right? It was very dead, and then it rained for like two days, and it looks like after Simba came back, right? It's like green and growing. I'm like, oh, that's how you keep your grass alive? Okay. Water. Weird, right? God sends rain on those who hate him and those who love him. He, when he receives nothing but hatred, he responds with blessing. He's gracious and merciful to all, including his enemies. Therefore, his children, who don't have the right to hate their enemies, should show the same sort of mercy and grace and love to their enemies. You see that? Your response to those who hate you should reflect your father's response to those who hate him. He makes the sun rise and the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Or to say it another way, you don't get your standards for how you behave from the surrounding world. You get your standard of how you behave from your Father. You don't get to say, if you want to claim Christ, well, they're doing it, so why can't I do it? You don't get your standard from the world. You don't get your standard of how you treat your enemies by how you feel. You get it from your Heavenly Father. You're meant to love your enemies, not how you see fit, not how your society sees fit, but how your Heavenly Father sees fit. You're meant to love in the same way God loves, in the same way your father loves. Rather than hating like the world hates, we're meant to love like our father loves. That's the foundational truth of this text. Love your enemies in the way your father loves his enemies. But Jesus is going to dig a little bit deeper here. Look at verse 46. We'll look at the next section, living as the people of the kingdom. Verse 46 For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus here is bringing up two groups that uh, every one of his hearers would have hated to be compared to. Gentiles, again, these pagans that they would have nothing to do with, these people who don't know God or his law and refuse to follow him. And then, again, tax collectors, even worse, traitors, right? It's like us saying communists or liberals, and you guys are like, what did you say? Is there one in here? It's just an example. Calm down. Um, Right? You get what I'm saying? Jesus is bringing this up and saying, look, when you behave this way, when you only love your own and you hate everyone else, guess who else does that? Those who you despise. Guess who you're behaving exactly like the rest of the world? There's nothing special about you. Nothing shows that you are different. Nothing shows that you're people of the kingdom when you only love those who love you and you only greet those who greet you and you hate everybody else and you treat everybody else like other, right? The Gentiles do that and the tax collectors do that. Nothing about that type of behavior shows that you are citizens of the kingdom of God that we've been waiting for because you're behaving like the citizens of the world, right? Behaving just like the world. Now... Our day, we don't have the same sort of uh, political, social structure in Jesus' day, but we do have the same sin that very much flew or influenced throughout their society, very much influences ours as well. We have a culture, similar to his, where it is impossible for hatred to starve. At least it seems that way. Very hate-filled, very us versus them Very tribalistic, right? We've got our crew. They're the ones ruining the world. We're the ones trying to keep the world back together. Very polarized. And unfortunately for Christians, it's not just something that's out there, right? It's not just how the world behaves. It's something that has very much influenced the church. They're the ones tearing the church down. If they would just be a little bit more like us, maybe we could finally, you know, the gospel could reach the ends of the earth, but they're too busy being crazy, right? Them over there. If you just loved a little bit more, maybe unbelievers would come in. Well, if you cared about truth a little bit more, you weren't so, you know, woke all the time, you see what I'm saying? Very much. You're doing it. If you were just a little bit more like us, everything would be okay. And uh, Michael Horton, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary, wrote a book on uh, this behavior that we're all kind of in the midst of called Recovering Our Sanity, where he's trying to, to identify, why are, we, why are we behaving this way? Why are Christians in particular basically perfectly reflecting the world's anger and the world's hatred towards other people? And his primary conclusion is that we've forgotten reality, hence the title Recovering Our Sanity, and the reality being God is the one in control of the world, not man. And when we forget that, and we think man is in control, when man does dumb stuff that we don't like, we freak out. And we're filled with fear. And we think, oh, the church might actually crumble, even though Jesus, who's in control, says the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. We forget reality. Or to say it another way, our fear of man trumps our fear of the, our fear of the Lord. Very man-focused, and as a response, we're fearful And to quote the other great theologian, uh, Yoda, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to? Boom. There we go. Thank you, Preston. (laughs) There you go. Anger leads to hate. I didn't even prep you this sermon. I'm always like, I'm going to quote Yoda. I need you to. Okay. You did it. Great job. Right? Okay. So we're we're, we're consumed with fear. And as a result, we other everybody else. Right? We've got our crew, the ones who care about truth. And then there's the Wokies who are, you know, tearing down the church, right, ruining everything. Notice who we're behaving exactly like, Gentiles and tax collectors. We love those who love us, those who care about truth, and we hate those who don't. We greet those who are like us, and we don't greet those who are bad, right? It's not just that people disagree with us, it's they're bad people. Right? They need to go away because they're threatening our way of life, things like that. It's the exact opposite of who God is calling us to be as citizens of the kingdom. The exact opposite of who Jesus is calling us to be. And if we can just dig a little deeper here, I've been observing, uh, I'm just an observer, I've been watching uh, the church, generic, uh, over the past five years. And if we're honest, in this whole fight... Parkway, we're the truth people, right? That's a good thing to be. As the church is kind of going woke or postmodern or whatever label you want to put on it, we're the people who stand for truth, which is a good thing. But then there's a, a slippery move that we've been doing that I think is really, really dangerous for our hearts. And it's it's simply to say, as long as I am on the side of truth, nothing else matters. Right? The ends justify the means because I'm on the right side. They're the bad guys, we're the good guys. And so as long as I'm on the side of truth, I can't be arrogant. If you call me arrogant, I'll just call you postmodern and claim this is righteous anger, right? If you say, you know, you need to soften your tone, that's what the wokeys say, right? Woke guy, here's what we found one, okay, right? You see that. The ends justify the means if we're on the side of truth. Again, notice who that is exactly paralleling, our world. Every rioter would say, There's been a historic injustice. I'm on the side of justice. Therefore, the ends justify the means. I didn't interview everybody that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but I imagine a common thread that was heard was there's been an untruth that's happened, right? An election was stolen. Therefore, I'm on the side of truth. The ends justify the means. When we make that same leap, we're the truth people. They're the ones tearing down the church. We look exactly like our surrounding culture. They're the ones doing it. I'm on the good side. Therefore, I'm fine. Sure, I might misspeak here or there, but overall, I'm on the side of goodness. Notice what's happening. We've adopted a lot of the world's tribalism. We're behaving like Gentiles and tax collectors most of the time, and we've just kind of sprinkled some spiritual language over the top. At least I think that's the majority of what's happening. And what's the danger there? is your heart can very easily be filled with hate for the other side without you knowing it because they're the ones that need to be conquered or stomped out or removed or whatever the case may be. And what's the greater thing that we've forgotten is the words of our Savior here. We follow generic truth instead of the Savior who is the truth. And who does the Savior who is the truth call us to be? To love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you. So I'll go go to the most common examples. Does Jesus flip the tables in anger? Yes. Do the prophets yell at those leading Israel astray? Yes. But read in the context. When Jesus, back up a few uh, chapters before he goes and flips the tables, as he's approaching Jerusalem, he weeps. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, how I long to take you under my wing like a hen does her chicks, but you would not have it. He's, yes, rebuking those who are leading his people astray, flipping the tables who have turned the house of God, a place of prayer, into a marketplace. But his heart is broken and filled with love for the enemies that he is rebuking. Same with the prophets. Rewind and see them before God when they're literally begging God, can you turn your wrath away, please? I don't want to go and rebuke them. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to bring this judgment on us? Can you just turn and be merciful to us? See their broken hearts filled with love. So can you stand for truth? Absolutely. You should die for truth with a heart filled with love as you pray for those who drift from it, not with hearts filled with arrogance. Please see that difference. Please see the difference. Here's a, here's a good example. The left, this is overly simplistic terms that I don't like, but I'm going to use them anyway. The left says, speak in love, right? Emotions, all this tone, that's it. The right, us, typically say, speak the truth, right? The most loving thing is to speak the truth, whereas Ephesians 4, God would say, speak the truth in love. You don't have to go one or the other. Speak the truth in love. So either God's gone woke on us, right, with his emotion tone talk, or we have adopted much more of our world's anger than we would dare realize. God says, speak the truth in love. Because of an abuse, don't swing the pendulum to another abuse. If you study church history, that is what we have done for 2,000 years, where God would say, correct in gentleness. Speak the truth in love. So what is the example? If there's no floating ball of truth that we're supposed to be loyal to, but rather Jesus, who is the truth, What would he have us do? I'm going to give you the most basic Sunday school answer possible. If the left says, throw out truth and just love. If the right says, throw out love, emotions, tone, just stand to the truth. What would Jesus say? And most Sunday school answer ever. We just look at the cross. As Jesus is dying for truth, dying for ultimate reality, as his enemies are driving nails through his hand as they mock him, as they spit on him, as they pluck out his beard, as they cast lots for his clothes, as the greatest injustice in history is happening, what flows out of his heart for his enemies? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see that tension. Dying for truth with a heart filled with love for their enemies, and that Savior, who is the truth, looks at you and me and says... Pick up your cross and follow me. And that's what we see throughout the whole New Testament. Stephen, the first deacon in Acts 7, declares the truth to the Pharisees, preaches the gospel, and they pick up rocks and stone him. And this is what he says as he is literally dying for truth. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Who is Stephen following? Who does Stephen look like? Does he look like our world who loves those who love them and hates those who don't? Or does he look like the Savior who says, Father, forgive them? Paul in prison at the end of 2 Timothy, his last letter most likely as he knows he's about to die. He writes this to Timothy, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Right? His greatest hour of need, he's in prison, all deserted me. What does Paul say? May it not be charged against them. Who does Paul look like? Whose footsteps is Paul following in? Does he look like the world? Does he look like Jesus? Peter, as he's writing to the church that's about to face major persecution, tells them, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes your way. It's going to come your way. He says this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter, who would have been sitting in the crowd in Matthew 5, sitting in the dirt hill mount, uh, listening to Jesus repeats the same thing. When evil comes your way, when persecution comes your way, don't trade like for like, rather bless like your Savior did. Do you see the radical difference between how our world behaves, how our culture behaves and how Jesus has called us to behave, how he behaves and says to us, pick up your cross and follow me. Because the reality is, when you've encountered this Savior, when you've encountered Jesus and you see how he treated you when you were his enemy, how could you ever treat anyone different? When you see how he treated you when you were his enemy, how could you ever treat anybody else with anything besides grace and mercy? How would you ever dare look down on anyone who's not as enlightened as you, right? Hasn't come to the truth like you have. Because you should know that except for a gracious Savior, you are no different The only difference between you and them is you've encountered a Savior who was merciful to you when you were his enemy. You guys okay? I usually cut the tension with a joke here, but I don't have one written down. Uh, See what I did there? I made a joke about not having a joke, and you laughed. Tension cut. Boom. Uh, You're welcome. Um, So thus far, I'm just talking about the heart, and I'm spending a lot of time here because You know, I've been watching this for five years, and now we're talking about it. So there you go. Uh, So there's another thing other than your heart. I don't want bitterness and frustration with our world that's gone crazy. I'm not saying our world's not crazy. It is. Uh, I don't want that to make your heart rot away with bitterness just because we're on the side of truth or whatever. I want us to follow in the Savior's footsteps, in our Savior's footsteps. But there's another piece That's arguably more important than just your heart position, and it's your witness. It's your witness to the lost and dying world. Because what Jesus is getting at here is when you are persecuted, your reaction to that persecution should be so radically different that the surrounding world is baffled, is somewhat confused. They're wondering, why aren't you slapping that person back? Like we saw last week, you get hit, On one cheek, why are you turning the other one? Why aren't you fighting back when this injustice is happening to you? Why are you remedying this, right? Why aren't you taking revenge, right? That's what everyone would think you should do, right? That's how the world would respond. When the world is persecuted, you return evil for evil. But Jesus says, how should you respond? Love them and pray for them in a way that confounds the world, It's a primary way the church's witness has spread throughout history. So I'm going to give you two examples of this, one ancient and one modern, of how responding like Jesus, calling us to respond here, has actually made the gospel go forward. The first one is a big one. It's just the the early church. Uh, The early church in Rome, particularly in the 2nd and 3rd century, uh, there before Constantine takes charge and makes Christianity kind of the religion of the empire, there was almost nothing but social cost becoming a Christian. Everyone hated you. You couldn't really go around in certain sectors of society because you didn't worship their gods and so you would be kicked out, right? Everyone would have been mocked. Everyone would have been slandered. Everyone would have been hated and mistreated. Many were killed. Christians were always an easy target anytime persecution broke out because everybody already hated them for the first 300 years of the church. Yet the gospel continued to go forth and spread throughout the Roman Empire like wildfire. And the question is, why? And there's many books that have been written on trying to answer that question, why? When there was almost nothing but negatives for joining the church, why did the numbers keep going up? Why did the gospel keep going forward, even though people who would become Christians would be Killed often for it, and Larry Hurtado wrote a book called *The Destroyer of the Gods*, where he zooms in on this question: Why uh, did Christianity destroy all the gods of the Roman Empire in the early church? And he says, you know, the reason wasn't because they had the best political strategists. You know, they could just get people to finally vote right, and that wasn't it. It wasn't because they had the best theologians. They didn't yet. Uh, especially in the in the early church a lot of the most brilliant theologians come later it wasn't necessarily just because they were so good at evangelism or so good at apologetics that in fact one of the primary reasons that most historians have landed on is how they endured suffering in particular how they responded to those who were persecuting them they never returned evil for evil in fact they did the opposite they blessed they loved And they prayed for their persecutors, and that reaction baffled the onlooking world. Why are they doing this? How can they do this? Why don't they respond how everybody would expect them to respond in fighting back, right? Remedying this injustice. In other words, there was something unexplainable about their behavior until the only explanation was their claims about who Jesus is must be true. Because only divine help would allow this sort of response to persecution. Only these claims about having communion with a living God would, would, exa- would explain away uh, this sort of response to persecution. And the gospel continued to spread throughout the empire. It was their radical love for the very people trying to kill them, the people they should have hated, that was their strongest witness for Jesus. Jesus. It was their response to persecution. They knew they were receiving injustice, but they also knew the words in Matthew 5. They also knew the one they were enduring the injustice for who said to them, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus, as a result, was made much of for the first three centuries. Ancient example, modern example. Uh, When I was in middle school, five years ago, I'm just kidding, a young joke, again, tense sermon, got to throw out the jokes. Uh, in 2006, I was in middle school. Some of you were in college. Um, some of you had kids in college. Uh, when I was in middle school, what, what's this example I'm getting at? In uh, Virginia in 2006, uh, in an Amish community, some of you know this story, uh, there was a, a shooter who took, uh, went into an Amish schoolhouse and took a bunch of girls hostage, uh, ended up uh, shooting and killing five of them. Uh, seven to, I think the oldest was 13, youngest was seven, and then he killed himself. Uh, and uh, what was the story that went all throughout uh, uh, the states, the nation, uh, wasn't the shooter, but the Amish response. And the Amish, you know, they're famous now for, I guess, you know, not using electricity or whatever. Uh, but they're, if you know anything about the Amish, they actually come out of, they're a Christian group. They come out of uh, the Reformation, the Amish, the Mennonites, and their... Romans, you know, we're Reformed folks, we love Romans, their Romans is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And so the Amish response to this was, within hours, uh, oh man, uh, oh man, this is coming, within hours of the shooting, uh, a grandfather of one of the girls that was killed stood up and said, we can't hate this man. Uh, He's standing before God, the judge, right now, we need to go love his Family. And so the Amish community surrounded uh, the killer's uh, wife and kids um, and parents. <clears throat> and uh, the community also, uh, one of the men, one of the Amish men, held the shooter's father in his chest and just let him cry for hours. Uh, the community, Amish community, went and said, We forgive your son, we forgive your husband, and we want to be here for you. And the really, really difficult days ahead. Uh, They started a charity for the killer's family, and at the killer's funeral, more than half of the people in attendance were from the Amish community. That was their response to this wicked act that uh, infuriated the world. And so the world looking in on this Amish response were baffled. Why are they doing this? Some people were amazed. Others were actually angry called it wicked. They should be seeking justice. They shouldn't just be forgiving so quickly. The world didn't know what to do with the Amish response, but the Amish knew that they had no other option but to respond in this way because when they were enemies, God didn't just send rain. He sent his son, his son who had all glory, laid it all down, and didn't just love them, didn't just pray for them, laid his life down For them and died for them when he was there, when they were his enemies. And then he looks at them and says, Take up your cross and follow me. How could they live any different than exactly how their Savior lived? Again, do you see this radical difference between who the people of the kingdom are called to be and how we're supposed to respond to persecution and how the world would expect you? To respond like a Gentile and like a tax collector. And so the question for us all is, what is that witness of your life? What does the witness of your life declare to the world when an injustice is done to you? When people you disagree with vote different than you or say a bunch of dumb stuff On the news, when you're actually persecuted, if anybody in this room has been actually persecuted, how do you respond? Do you respond just like any other angry conservative? Do you respond by mocking or being cynical or whatever it is? There they go, they're burning down the world, if only they were more like me. Or does something about your life look otherworldly? If people were to read your tweets which they can, I guess, Uh, in your Facebook or hear your small talk, what would they conclude about you? Would they conclude, again, something so radical has happened to that person's heart that we can't explain why they're behaving this way? Or would they conclude, yeah, you're just behaving like all of the rest of the world? And let me just warn you, no one in this room that I know of has come close to sniffing any sort of the persecution that the first century church went through and I don't think we're doing a great job. I mean, I'm, I might be a harsh judge, right? And so when, not if, when it gets worse, the question for us is going to be, will we hear the words of our Savior and respond in a way that makes Jesus glorious and makes the world want whatever you have? Or will we respond the exact same way as everybody else? In our world? Will we look like Gentiles and tax collectors, or will we look like citizens of another kingdom who have communion with the King of all beauty and the King of all joy? What witness will your life display? And let me just go ahead and give you the answer. Uh, You exist for one reason, his glory. And so pick up your cross and follow him, the one who, when the nails are being driven through his hand, prayed, Father, forgive them. He calls us to live radically different. And so the question, the last question, I guess, is, okay, but how? How do we actually live in this way that is so radically different? That brings us to the last section. We looked at loving like God, living like people of a different kingdom, and then lastly, resting in the perfect king. Look at verse 48, in case everybody was, uh, you know, not depressed enough. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We were feeling good until then, okay? Uh, okay, so remember what's happening. This, this, this seems a little bit random. Jesus is walking through and showing examples of the law, and every time he's showing, the standard is higher than you thought, Everyone listening to him probably thinks they're doing a pretty good job keeping the law. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Right? I gave away a certificate of divorce. I haven't broken any oaths. Right? And Jesus is constantly showing you it's not about murder. It's about hatred in your heart. Have you ever had a lustful thought? Right? Have you ever uttered a false word? Have you ever said yes when it was really a no or no when it was really a yes? And he's constantly showing his hearers every step of the way our own failure. The higher demand of the law makes obvious our own failure. And here, in case anybody thought they like, wiggled through and like, I'm killing it. Never lusted, never hated anybody. Uh, I've always said yes, and it's been a yes. Here's the ultimate high bar that no one passes. Be perfect, you know, like God. We most, most of us know the story of the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler's like, I'm killing it. And Jesus is like, great, sell everything you have and follow me. And he's like, What? No, right? And he goes away because there's this impossible standard. It's similar here. Be perfect like God. You want to enter into the kingdom? Here's the requirement. Perfection in the way that God is perfect. It's not just hard. It's not just impossible. It is, or it's not just difficult. It is impossible any way you slice it. And that is the point, how we've ended the last several weeks. Uh, this is meant to crush you. We all have hearts that long to earn. We all have hearts that long to, to deserve what we get, right? I did these good things, therefore give me my reward, right? We love to compare. I'm better than that guy, I'm better than that girl, right? So give me what I deserve. Jesus strips all of that away from you and says, here's the standard be perfect like God, even your best efforts before holy God, filthy rags, right? It's meant to crush you, meant to crush you, but not crush you for depression. It's meant to crush you for joy. If sin at its very nature is removing God and trying to step in his place, it's only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize I make a really terrible God, And I fail every step of the way. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we can lift our eyes to look to. Here it is, the only one who is perfect, like the Heavenly Father is perfect. It's meant to take all of your righteousness that you believe you have and crush it to show that it's really dust so that you look elsewhere for your help. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows your failure that is why he is here on the mount preaching, because he knows the failures of his people, and he came not to assist you in keeping the law, but rather to keep the law for you. He came down to fulfill the law in your place. He has never had one ounce of hatred in his heart. He's never had a lustful thought. He's never, he would never divorce His bride, he's never uttered a false word. When he's slapped in the face, he does turn the other cheek, stays silent. And when he is uh, killed by his enemies as they drive the nails through his hand, he loves them and he prays for them. And here, the final standard He is the only one who is perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the key we talked about at the beginning What is the key that unlocks the whole gospel? Though the law should crush us, he lets it crush him. The only one who ever actually upheld the law lets our failures crush him so that we could be saved from the crushing law. He takes the eternal punishment for your failure and my failure and gives us the eternal blessing of his success. He takes our filthy rags and clothes himself in them so that we might be clothed in his glorious righteousness. He unites us to him. We're in Christ, Paul's favorite phrase. We've been united to him so that all that is his is now ours. So how do we get this final standard, this impossible standard that has been placed above us? Being perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Jesus Christ unites us to himself. We've been united to the one who is perfect, the only one who is perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 2, I want to read this passage as we begin to wrap up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, here's the reality of every one of our lives that this crushing law and this glorious Savior displays. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons in disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, when we were enemies, when we were those who hated him, we weren't just lost, we were in active rebellion against him. When we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Only in Jesus, only in him and through him can we actually live, can you actually live as the people of the kingdom who are so radically different than the Gentiles and the tax collectors, than the rest of the world, to where the only explanation for your life is Jesus. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's not just an example to follow. It's not just, oh, Jesus did really good. Now we've got to try and do really good. If you're a Christian, you are... Been, you've been brought into fellowship with a living Jesus who sees you right now, who's alive right now, who's brought you into his family now, where God is your father and he is your brother and gives you a love that cannot be measured. He gives you a rest that the world can't touch. He's a foundation beneath your feet to where you can be a sinner who stumbles and falls because his foundation never moves. He's a source of joy, a well of living water that will Never run dry. He's not just some standard to try and meet or some example to follow. He is. His strength becomes your strength, and his power is made perfect in your weakness. And the only way to rob yourself of him is to look away from him and look back here. It's probably the most continual theme we brought up all throughout Matthew: is don't look away from him. Don't look here. Keep your eyes up on him. He came to fulfill the law where you and I constantly fail. So let that crush you in a good way so that your eyes can be lifted up in joy. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. All that is his is yours because he is yours. He's brought you in so that we can live and move and have our being in him so that even in the worst persecution like him, We can love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and display him, a Savior that has transformed our hearts, that when we were enemies, he loved us. Therefore, we love our enemies. What would be a greater witness in our furious, angry, hate-filled world that seems to be only getting angrier than a people who know that Savior and display him when they receive hate? Lift your eyes to him. Look to him. Don't white-knuckle it and grit your teeth and just try to be good. Rather, like Paul confess, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. Father, there's a way to hear a sermon that talks about how we are supposed to live and our eyes just go right down to our own efforts. You know, we hear about our failure and we just think, okay, I'll try to be good like the Amish. I'll try to be good like uh, the early church. I already hear those uh, whispers. I'm sure so many in this room do. And I pray that uh, those would fall to the ground, that uh, you would, by your Spirit, uh, lift our eyes to your Son to where we actually find strength in Him, that we're not looking to ourselves for our own strength and that we would actually, as a result of drawing our life from him, look more like him. Uh, As you say, you're, you're conforming us into his image, Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not according to the patterns of this world, Lord, but rather we would look more like your son as we grow in sanctification and in holiness in a way that confounds the world, that we would not simply just adopt the world's rage but rather would adopt our Savior's love and that we would have the first impulse of praying for those who persecute us, that we wouldn't be filled with fury, that we actually would have righteous anger, but in a way that leads us to your Son, that when reviled, we can bless and we can't actually turn the other cheek and that that would do what we're living for, which is glorify your name, not ours. So love you, Father. I pray that you would help us. You are the only one that can do this, like we prayed at the beginning. This is not based on our efforts. Our efforts would just lead to more failure. You're the only one that can supernaturally transform a heart, and so we ask you to, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.